yours. And then, uh, and then thanks for coming on here, man. You've been putting out some fire content recently. Thanks, man. I've been, I've been hard at work at that. Yeah, you have, uh, which I want to dive into. There's a lot of things that you're saying that I just want to, you know, on the, on the money aspect that I want to dive into, but, um, real quick, you were one of the very first professional snowboarders, right? Out of Buffalo. Yeah. Yeah. There was only th technically three, maybe four of us that ever made it out of Buffalo, New York into the pro circuit. And I was one of them. How long ago was that? Whew, holy crap. Um, around 1992 or 93, somewhere in that general range. How old were you? Well, I, I went pro. So I was amateur from like, when would it have been? 16, well, how you, how 17. How old are you now? I'm 40, 45 now. I think I went pro at 18. It was 18 or 19, somewhere in that range. Yeah. Okay. And uh, how long did you do that? A long time. I I rode pro from 19 until I was, I think, 34 when wow. I had a, I overshot, overshot a table out in Mammoth, California. It's just a bluebird day, and I just went for it and went, went for it a little too much. Dropped from about 35 feet straight down, and I just uh, never never made it back. Never made it back it. from that one. That was it. Yeah, I had yeah. a lot of injuries, tons. That was the only one I couldn't get back from. Well, it's a little bit harder when you're 35, right? Or 34, 35 versus 25. We don't bounce back quite as uh, <laughs> quite as good. <laughs> Nick, it's funny how that works. You know, I, I I hit the ground. I'm like, I'm good. I'm good. No, I'm not good. <laughs> no, wait a minute. I don't, wait a minute. I'm not so good, actually. <laughs> so, um, all right. So, you know, I, I wrote a book called, you know, everybody that you know, knows me knows that I wrote a book called The Seven Stages of Transition. I'm curious when that happened where was your head at what happened in your life post that career because you got a very different career now like what the things that you have going on like you you took i mean we both did right we you, you pivoted hard but obviously that didn't happen like the next day so where what was that journey like of going you know like you you've been snowboarding when did you start snowboarding how old were you when you first strapped Probably on a pair of skis or twelve years old. Yeah, I had to have been twelve when I put that mogul monster on. You know, just walked up the street and just going straight down the hill, hitting jumps made out of sticks and snow. Yeah. Um, and uh, yes, yeah, I think I was twelve years old, man. So That's over over twenty years of doing this thing of being this this guy, right? Especially at a pro level, and then that happens. Can you can you you know how did that? I can. How did that? How did that go? Yeah, I can explain it. It's difficult to explain the feeling, but I'll do my very best. Um, so at that moment, when I hit the ground, you know, everybody came over and like, oh, my God, we saw you disappear. And I, I kind of knew I was pretty broken. Um, you know, I had tore my bicep. My I broke my tailbone. My butt was I've never seen a purple color quite as extravagant as that. <clears throat> my ankle <clears throat> was shot. I can't even remember all the other things that happened, but I got up, you know, I was just a trooper. I'd had so many injuries and as a pro snowboarder, you're just going to get hurt. So when you get hurt, you're, you're always like, I'm good. I'm good. Even after like I retired, I went back into competing and I had two injuries and it was the same thing. Like you pop up, you're like, I'm good. And you start walking and you're like, no, I'm not good, but I'm going to pretend I'm good. And I remember I was out there with a new sponsor and I just remember like, riding 
you know, like I rode down. I didn't get taken down in a stretcher that time, which kind of still surprises me. But then that night when the injuries actually settled in, and I think, right. you know, that whatever that euphoria ended, I realized like the severity of it. I rode the next couple of days, but I rode in the most severe pain. And as a matter of fact, that year, when I got back, I did everything. I did acupuncture. I did massage therapy. I did cold therapy. I did, I did everything you could possibly do to try to get my body to not heal or get better. Cause it wasn't a fast healing injury, yeah. but just to get over the pain so that I could keep going. I was filming a video part. It was, I knew it was going to be my last video part. And I remember going out with the film crews and I told nobody that I was hurt. I, I, unless they saw me that day, nobody knew I was hurt, but they, they knew that I wasn't riding like I was. So I, I did, I went through that whole season taped up. I, I bought every protective thing that like padded your butt and everything else. I, I literally would shove t-shirts down the back. I probably looked like I had a giant ass. <laughs> Some of my best ass days ever. <laughs> But it was just, you know, stuff I shoved down my pants so that if I accidentally had like a butt tap, like it wouldn't send a shockwave through my spine. But at the end of that year, when it was very evident that I wasn't winning contests, I wasn't filming a good video part, I started, the, the reality started to sink in like it was over. It wasn't going to come back slowly started losing sponsors one after the other. And it was kind of just this natural progression. And, you know, I had accepted it, but I was never willing to accept it. So <clears throat> after just, the just fizzled out well, kind of, I just fizzled out, but it happened yeah. very quickly. And I, I remember each one of those contests where it happened to, and I remember the feeling I remember knowing I could do it. You know, it, it's just like anything, any, any professional athlete in your mind, you know, you got it. You know, you can win. You can go out there and do everything you've ever been able to do. But then all of a sudden your body won't. And it was yeah. the weirdest thing for me because I still wanted it, man. I wasn't ready to me. It wasn't my time. It wasn't ever going to be my time. I was going to go and go and go like the energizer bunny, but something was different. My body was telling me it wasn't. And I, I literally the next season, I had no desire to snowboard. I tried the fire was out. Like I, I didn't have a purpose. I didn't have a, a meaning. I, I, I could still ride. I still loved it, but I just, there was something lacking and it just wasn't the same. So I just stopped going and I'll never forget. It was late that year. I was probably March. I got a call from this resort and this guy that I knew really well. And he said, Hey, uh, one of our lead coaches for the national team just left. And you know, I, I was wondering, I, I know it's a long shot, but we were wondering if you would come on as, as being the head coach for the national team. Immediately, Nick, I said, no, no, I'm a rider. I'm not a coach. I, I'm no, I, I'm not interested, but thank you so much for calling. And I hung up and it was, it was probably take, he probably thought of you asshole. Like, but to me, I was a rider and I wasn't a coach. I'd been coached by people. I knew what coaches were. Coaches were pros that used to be pros that were washed up now. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't ready to accept that. But then I thought about it over weeks. And I talked to my, my fiance. I think she was my fiance at that point, girlfriend or fiance. And, and I started thinking, but wait, I can get paid to ride again. I'll be in the events that I used to compete at. So maybe I can compete too. So I took the job. And this was a weird pivot. And I know I'm going long in this, but this, no, no, this pivot good. here. This pivot here was one I could have never dreamt of happening. 
when I started coaching this team, I was so standoffish in the beginning. I didn't want to, I wanted to just be the rider. I went out there. I rode as hard as I could while I was coaching them. I was hitting the jumps. I, I, everything like that I knew that I was supposed to do as a rider was back, but it was back to show the kids what was possible. And then I'll never forget that first nationals we went to. I had coached really hard. I put my heart and soul into coaching these kids and showing them and, and getting into their head, the mindset of what it takes to be, you know, to win, to, to go out yeah. there and do. Yeah. And I remember watching my first coaching, you know, my, my, my students, I remember watching them get on that stage and accept their, their medals and take first, second you know, podiums. Dude, th the feeling I felt was so much greater than any feeling I could have ever felt if I was up there that I don't know what happened, but all I wanted was to help them get on that stage, get on that podium and win. I no longer cared about me winning. I no longer cared about what I could do or how good I used to be. I only cared about what in me can I tell them that will get them there faster than I did. And that never changed. And I, I led that team for six years as their head coach. And it was some of the greatest years, man. Uh, I, I watched riders develop. I watched young kids, be, I, I, young boys become men. I watched young girls become Olympic athletes. One girl is still competing in the Olympic circuit. And I always think back, I had a little something to do with that success, that mindset, that drive. And uh, it was the single greatest thing I ever did in my snowboarding career. That's amazing. And I, got, I took two things from that. One, as a competitor, as a winner, there is a inherent drive that we have for the winners, for people that win. Because, and I say this all the time, you can lose and still win. You can't quit and win. You're a quitter, you're a quitter. But when you got hurt, what winners do, what pros do, is anything that they need to do stuff t-shirts down their backs strap on things it's a it's there's a there's a mental difference with a winner that goes i'm just gonna do it anyway like the hell with my body but there's a certain set of you know like and i'm not saying that to go do it destroy your body that's not what i'm saying my point being is the mental toughness that people at that level have and that's what I try to get to have people understand. Like, you have to be obsessed. You have to be willing to. The, the price for success is pain, misery, and suffering. It's the go that it's the go the distance and go to the places that people don't want to go. And like, you're literally like, you're essentially your career is over. But mentally, you're like, I will do whatever it takes to keep this train moving. Absolutely. And that's and that takes an, an enormous amount of heart, an enormous amount of mental fortitude that that the majority of people just don't have. They don't have what it takes to will to go the distance to, to get to make it to that level. But they they do. But that's what we're trying to get people to understand, right? You have to like you have to have that volume cranked all the way up. And uh, and it's and, funny, like you know, I I think back to that point, you know, and. A lot of people are like, oh, that must have hurt. Like, I can't even explain to you the pain. But the pain wasn't great enough, no matter how bad it was. I mean, right. It doesn't matter. When I, when You're I used would, to pain. When you I can handle down, pain. Yeah. <laughs> I would just tap my butt, and, and I would be in so much pain that I couldn't speak. I couldn't breathe. 
because it just resonated through. But that pain wasn't great enough to overcome the feeling I was chasing. The thing. It didn't matter what the pain was, dude. I could, I, I don't know. That's a hard thing to try to articulate to people. Right. That pain is just a mental thing. It's just a block. It's just something we make excuses on. And when you want something so bad, it doesn't matter how much pain you endure. You're just going to do it. But I mean, I, I literally take that in and I transfer it into like waking up early in the morning to get shit done, like your GSD time. Like the thing that I'm chasing is more important than an extra 15, 30 minutes or an hour of sleep. So I'll wake up at 5 a.m. to get my shit done before the family wakes up so that I can move the money needle in my life so I can have financial freedom. You know what I mean? But that's the that's the sacrifice, right? Seven days a week doing the thing. You know, and, and yeah, it's not it's it's not landing on my ass and cracking my spine and all that kind of stuff. But there's a there's a you know what I mean? There's a certain level of uncomfortability that you have to endure to achieve the thing. And that's and that's when I every time I talk to guys like you, the next level guys, right, the guys that are crushing it, the guys that are, you know, in the top one percent, there's the that's it's that's the commonality right there. The commonality is like, I'm going to do the thing. I'm going to go to the far distance and I don't care about my body. I don't care about my sleep. I don't care. I'm going to do the thing even when it hurts in spite of it hurting. So did you become curious? Did you become any sort of self-destructive once the sponsorship started growing up? Did you, uh, how did you keep yourself healthy? Did you keep yourself healthy or did you, you did, did you spiral out of control for a little while? Spiraled out of control. Uh, you know, I, I had other things going on. So at that time, you know, I still, I had retail shops. So I had skateboard, snowboard shops that I started, you know, pretty early on, uh, you know, 17 turning 18. So I had those going on, uh, at the end of my snowboarding career, I, I was in the financial world. I was in the, the wall street world. So I was also doing that because during the, the nine 11, you know, when the planes hit the tower, that was the first recession I'd ever gone through. And I had to get a job. And the only people that would hire me was wall street. So I was actually running skateboard shops, snowboarding professionally and being a financial advisor. So you oh, talk okay. about so just your like advisor stuff actually, actually started while you were still pro. Uh, a pro. Yeah. So this is not, there, a, this is not it, the last kind of five was, years. Oh no, 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 no. Okay. It was all at the same time. Like I, I had my, my retail stores, fat man board shops, which still exist today. I sold them in 2010, but I had those the whole time up okay. until 2010. And then, um, from 2003, I was in the Wall Street world. So I was doing them simultaneously, which is interesting because a lot of people are like, how did you do that? Well, it was the single greatest thing that ever happened. It happened out of necessity because I, I needed money. <laughs> I, was, I was going broke because the, the recession had devastated my retail stores. Uh, but the interesting part was up to that point in business, I was always working in the store. I was the best at gripping skateboards. I was the best at putting snowboards together. Nobody could tune a board like me. Nobody could sell a board like me. I was the best because I was in the business working. Now all of a sudden I'm in Wall Street working. I can't be in the business. So it forced me almost instantaneously to work on the business, not in it. I had to promote my my friends who technically were working in a managerial capacity, but I then gave them the keys. I said, run this and do this and don't let me down. And they didn't, man. They took my retail stores to a level I never could have because they were, they brought new things that I never would have. And not only that, while they're bringing their ideas to it, I'm working on the business. I'm coming up with the coolest ideas. I'm building a skateboard and snowboard team. I'm filming videos with video production companies to build the business and doing things that 
no other skateboard snowboard shop had ever done at that time. But I couldn't have done that if all I ever did is worked in the business. That gave me the catapult to work on it, not in it. And it was the single greatest thing that ever happened to my business life. But it also then catapulted me to learn all, you know, the, the stuff about traditional financial uh, knowledge that I have, which I barely use at all today. <laughs> so what do you think the percentage is? And I'm, I'm so glad that you brought that up. What do you think the percentage of businesses that kind of either teeter out or top out because people are their own bottleneck and they stay working in the business versus promoting themselves out to where they work on the business? What do you think? Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know, Nick. I don't know the statistic. I, I'm sure it's way more than I'd want to yeah, know. Yeah, once uh, you give it credit to, yeah. I think that's the number one think, thing that uh, most businesses either fail or 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 cap out at is because the owner, the the owner operator, is incapable of getting out of their own way. I, I see it every day at restaurants. I see it every day at, at you know gas stations that I go to. I see it at all the places, the gyms they're always behind the counter. They're always working on it. And I'm like, you know, if you just like went out there and you started working on the business, put other people in charge of these menial tasks, like, why are you making a shake, man? Why are you behind the counter checking people out to buy ho-hos? It's just like, Chris, it's just, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, because if I don't do it, if I don't do it, it won't get done the right way. If you want something done, you got to do it yourself. Chris, is that right? Bullshit. Bullshit. <laughs> Not even close. That's a lie Others that we will that's do a lie the job we, better. It's a lie that we tell ourselves though. And it pisses me off now because I know the other side. Yeah, and because right. now I've not because I got out, I was able to study and look at what other big businesses did. Man, nobody was right. working in the business. They were working on it. They were taking it to the next level. They got to be the visionary, the dreamer that they started at when they got that idea to do a business to change people's lives and solve problems. But then all of a sudden, they get stuck in the freaking job they create for themselves because they forgot how to be a dreamer and a visionary. And they said, oh, nobody can do it better than me. Man, nobody could grip a skateboard better than me until somebody gripped a skateboard better than me. But I had to allow that to happen. I had to see that happen. And then I needed to accept the reality. I wasn't the best. There's um, other people that can do all this stuff better than me. What do I want to do next? That's a, it's an, it's an ego play, right? You had to, you had to get your ego. I love that book. You, ego is uh was it ego is your enemy. Ego is the enemy. I haven't read that one. It's a great one, man. It's a great one. Um, but but yeah, like your ego gets in the way, right? You think, well, nobody can do it better than me. That's bullshit. There are, whatever that thing is, there is a specialist that their whole passion in life is to do that thing. And it's a lot better than you can do it. I promise you. Yeah. Some of your audience might not like this, but I got to say this now that we're on this topic. I like, I like pissing the Why audience off. Go ahead. So good, go ahead, good. Because I, I don't really, I'm not out trying to make friends right now. I could give two shits. Yeah. Why is it that people mow their lawn? Oh, I like mowing the lawn. Okay. Why do you, why do they weed their own gardens? Why do they do all those things that they could pay somebody 30 bucks, 25 bucks a time to do because they don't know how to get out of the way. Now I'm not saying there isn't that rare person. that's like, oh man, I love riding the mower. Now, maybe you do, but like how many other things in your life do you do just because you can't, not because you want to, but because you can't all oh, the sinks plugged up. I'm going to, I'm going to spend six hours tinkering around with this thing to fix it. Right? Like we grew up, my parents, I grew up watching that. 
oh, I can fix that. I can fix this. I can do this. And it took them all day to do what would normally take a specialist or an expert half hour to do. Right. I got to a point, and I don't know where in my life I realized this, where I started questioning everything. I used to mow my own lawn. I'd bitch and moan about it. Oh, the grass is long. I had to go out and mow it. You know, not I didn't dislike mowing lawn, but I never really understood the value of my time. I always understood the value of work. I understood that if I work hard and I can make more money and if I work harder and longer, I can make more money. We're literally taught the biggest lie. And that is go out and hustle and hustle and hustle. There's an element of hustling, but like at a certain point, you have to start realizing that your time is priceless. And the second you realize that you really question everything in your life, you start looking at all these things like mowing the lawn. That took me an hour. I pay somebody 30 bucks to mow my lawn now so that I get an hour with my two-year-old daughter so that I get an hour to go work on the things that drive me. I get an hour to go to the gym. Listen, we can't make any more time. We have 24 hours in the day. That's it. And we have so few hours to trade. What do you trade in your hours for? Mowing the lawn, pulling the weeds, fixing the toilet, fixing the sink because you can. So can somebody else. And their time isn't worth as much as yours. So what you got to start realizing. Yeah, I don't do any of that shit. I not a not a nothing. I do my five percent. None of it. None of I it. Focus on the things yep. that only Nick can do. And then so many of you guys need to listen to that. Like we've talked about that in the past, but you you freaking nailed it, man. And I've heard stories. I never heard you talk about it, but that's that's I've, it. I've heard I've heard stories of where uh one of my business mentors, when he first launched his coaching business, he was selling, I think it was like I mean very early on in his coaching business, it was something like $5,000, right? He was taking a sales call for five grand. His uh, sprinkler blew up or something in the backyard. So he had an assistant take the sales call. He's like, well, you know the pitch, you know the deal. Just take the call. Let me go deal with this sprinkler because it's like spraying water all over the place. So he's out there and he's fighting with the sprinkler system. And, you know, I think he ended up having to hire somebody anyway for $20 an hour to fix the sprinkler because he couldn't do it or whatever. And uh, his assistant didn't make the sale. So not only did he have to pay the guy anyway to fix the sprinkler, but he also lost the five grand on the on on the coaching client. You know, and I think that's when he says, like, that was my wake up call. Like, uh, why did I just pay the guy to fix the sprinkler and turn the water off and not worry about it and then take the call to go make the money so then go pay the guy? You know, but that's it, right? That's that's the that's the thing. That could be taken a lot of different places because I think a lot of people make emotional decisions. Like that was an emotional decision. He, he's, oh my God, it's sprinkling. Emotional decision. He could have just stopped for a second, just paused, let the emotion go by because all emotion is temporary. Let the yeah. emotion go by and think logically. And logic would have told him, I'm going to make this sale. That sale is going to make me five grand. I could pay a hundred people to go fix that sprinkler and you can go off and do something that you're good at, you know, to the assistant Yeah, logic. People invest emotionally right now. And that's why this next phase of where we're going to go is going to be so devastating. It's because we literally have built up this, this false reality of what things are and how they operate. And we haven't seen reality. We haven't seen what logic will soon to teach people because we've lived in an emotional world and the media and everything else has conditioned us that way. And it's, it's going to be, it's going to be for most people, the equivalent of getting hit by a Mack truck at full steam ahead. Well, let's get, let's get into that. So, cause you've been talking a lot about this. So Chris, what do you do now? What is, what is your, what 
what do you have going on? How do you serve people now? I solve people's money problems by showing them how to be in control of their money. That is the only thing that I do. And I do that by teaching people how to be their own bank. And in being their own bank, I put them back in control of the single thing they have been taught to give up control of, and that is money. Now, I don't care how you view money. Some people that heard that word got a weird feeling, maybe a defensive feel, maybe a, you know, an uncomfortable feel. It doesn't matter how that word made you feel. Money is the tool. That's all it is. It's the shovel in the garage when you want to build the garden. That tool is not understood and not used in today's world, primarily because we have been taught to give up control of it. We give it to the banks. We give it to Wall Street. We give it to our advisors. I used to be one of those advisors. That's how I know. And we just say, oh, they're going to be a better steward of our money. Well, pretty soon, most people are going to realize the folly in that one, the mistake in that one, because it's, it's funny. I just heard this the other day. Anyone that's 38 years old or younger has never felt or understood what a recession is. You can read about it. You can hear about it. You can go on TikTok and try to learn about it, but you don't understand the impact. People don't understand what a recession does. I do. I've been through two of them. One is an advisor. One is a business owner. And this recession that's coming, the one we're in right now, contrary to what the idiots on, on you know, DC over there are trying to say, oh, the definition of a recession has changed now. Really? It's quite simple. We are in a recession, but we're in the early stages and they're going to play games with this. But here's the thing. This recession will be different. One that I've never seen in my lifetime because it is the end of a long-term debt cycle. So unless you can tell me you lived through the Great Depression, 1933, you've never seen the end of a long-term debt cycle. But what you can see very clearly right now, and this is what I want your audience to really highlight, and then we can get anywhere into the be your own bank stuff and all that, but what people need to really look at is the signs, right? There was an old song, signs, signs, everywhere there's signs. There are signs everywhere. And for some reason, people have been blinded to the truth. And I think a lot of that's the media and just because, hell, because we've been in the longest bull run in history. It's good times, good times, good times. Everybody needs to read the late Stefan Arnio's book, Hard Times Create Strong Men. We have been in really easy times for too long. And yeah. people just think it's this is the norm. And it is not. And we're about to see what that means. Jerome Paulo, just the other day, came on and he said, the U.S. could feel some pain. Now, you can articulate that any way you want. Let me give you the definition. We, the Federal Reserve, are not owned by the United States of America. And we, the Federal Reserve, are going to destroy the U.S. economy and the stock market pain because we have to to get a hold of the beast that we created called inflation. We printed $5.1 trillion. We lent that to the United States government in exchange for U.S. Treasury bonds. Whoops, we triggered inflation, which is bad for us, good for the U.S. government. So we have to get a handle on that and bring it to its knees, 3%, so 8.5 to 3. And doing that, we're going to raise rates seven times, and we're going to unwind our balance sheet, which consists of only $8.9 trillion dollars in government bonds and mortgage-backed securities. Now, they're not going to unwind at all. But if any of you have seen the movie Spaceballs, this is the best way I can explain the unwinding of the balance sheet. If you remember Helmet, 
best part of the movie. Yep. Helmet and the bad guys roll up in their little black ship. And there's this planet. I don't remember the name of it, but we all know it was Earth. Yep. And their ship converts into a vacuum, you know, a maid. Yep. And she connects it to Earth and she starts sucking all the air out. That ship, that maid is the Fed. They've connected the vacuum cleaner and they just flip the on switch on. $75 billion a month going to be sucked out of the capital markets. And what does that mean? Less money for you, less money for them. They're going to pull all that money they printed to the tune until they get what they want, which is 3% target inflation. They're going to suck all that money out just like that. There's not a thing you can do, not a thing the government can do. No one can stop them from doing this. And by the way, we're going to not just suck the money out. We're also going to make money really expensive in, in, in relative terms. We're going to keep raising interest rates until it hurts so bad for you to want to buy that new car. You're just like, honey, the 1995 Taurus is just fine. We're not getting that new car. I'm sorry. It's too expensive. And folks, if you think anything I just said is a, is a made up thing, you really need to study history because that's exactly what's going to happen. Because this isn't the first time they rolled their bad guy ship up to the, you know, the thing and started sucking it out. They've done this, I think, nine or 10 other times. And how many times do you think they've successfully pulled off, quote unquote, in today's word, a soft landing? One. And it was nowhere near the magnitude of where we're at. So you really think they're going to soft land this thing? Folks, this 747 is coming in hot in a straight up nosedive and they lost the tailwing. They're crashing this son of a bitch intentionally. And we're all on. The question is, did you bring a parachute? Because I did. Nick, you got a parachute? I know you do. Yep. The ones that prepare what this will be is not the mess that I just made it out to be. It will be the single biggest effing opportunity in your entire life. And you're going to have to answer to your kids someday. You're going to have to say, you know what, little Johnny? Your daddy got ready, and that's why we lived the life that not many people are able to because I saw that coming. I heard this crazy guy on Nick's podcast one day say, time to get ready, and here's what you do, and I did it. Little Johnny, you're going to live a life that not many other people can because they buried their heads in the sand. They conformed to what everybody else told them to do, to everybody else's failed realities. Little Johnny, I did one thing different. I created the destiny that you're witnessing right now folks are you guys going to create or are you going to fucking conform because that's all there is the difference between success and failure lies in one thing and it is creation it has always been and it will always be that one differentiation and i see way too much conformity happening today and that's it so before we get into what to do do you think and I, I already kind of know the answer to this, but do you think that there is a cor uh, course correction that could be had or is the damage too far, too far gone that it has to crash for us to right the ship? So I'm always an optimist. So I love that question because it brings me back to my optimistic world and not thinking that, you know, there is a chance. Right. I don't know how they could do it at this point. I really truly don't know how they could do it. I know economics extremely well. I understand measures. I understand patterns. I, I don't know how they could, but I suppose there's a chance. I just don't know how they'll do it. I really don't. Yeah. Nick, I think if, uh, if they were able to get a hold of the inflation, cause that's, that's their target. Now inflation, right. 
for everybody. Like we're all de dealing with it. We're all thinking it's the worst thing ever. It's temporary. It always has been. But yeah. what the Fed will do is solve a temporary problem with a long-term solution. Inflation Reduction Act. It's, just signed into yeah, thing. You posted real Tell quick. Tell me, you, Nick. You posted something real quick. Oh, I think it was you about the uh, the interest rate for the houses in the 80s or something like that. Was that mm -hmm. you, the old yep. thing? It was like- That was me. Like fixed APR. 14.87%, Four, yeah. I think it was. Fixed. Yeah. Like people yeah. have forgotten. Well, I mean, I guess, you know, a lot of people are young, but they, so they don't know. But anyways, go ahead. Well, I mean, so everybody's like freaking out because interest rates are what a little north of six percent right now right. on a thirty-year mortgage, folks. That isn't high. That's normal. <laughs> yeah. That's that's reality. We're, what we've been living in is a false reality. Like that's real. Yeah, we. So we're, like we're that's not out of the, the hog. Yeah, right. Right. Out <laughs> <laughs> of the hog. All right. Um, you know, so like, how could they pull it off if they got a hold of inflation fast enough? It doesn't seem like it's working. And if they could do that, here's the only. I think this is the only way, Nick, and I think there is no other way. Right now, you'd have to understand, you'd have to understand inflation, deflation, and stagflation. You'd have to understand all three of those terms, which I do, and we're not going to get into it. It's boring. But there's one thing holding us up right now, only one. And if the Fed and the U.S. government can maintain that one thing, there is a slight chance. I, I'd say it's less than 1%. And that one thing is unemployment numbers. If they can manage to keep people employed. If they can keep industries keeping people employed, there's a slight chance we will avoid this thing. It, it still will hurt, but we might not crash. We might come down and like, you guys have been on a plane where you're in a windstorm, right? One wheel hits, the plane bounces, another wheel hits. You're like, we're going down and then, and then you stop. They, that might happen, but they'd have to maintain employment levels. But it Pretty seems, close to where they're at it now, seems like to me being a business owner and, you know, multiple businesses, I employ people. Um, it seems to me that they want the opposite. They don't want, they want people they on the tit. Which, Control. Which that that's where I'm going with this. Now that paints a completely different picture. That means they want that 747 to crash. If, if the, if, if keeping people employed, keeping them paid, keeping them spending money, is is the fix or potential you know ease the blow right then why aren't they doing that why is that not a, a huge push vice the other way around you know i i can get because of I, modern i can get right, 40 I can, I can get 40 applications maybe one people show one person shows because mm -hmm. all they got to do is show that yep. they're trying to get a job but then they don't show and they keep that unemployment check so to, to answer, I can go really deep into this, but I'm just going to try to keep it high level and we'll yeah. go wherever you want. Yeah. To answer that, you'd have to understand economics. Okay. There's Austrian economics, there's Keynesian economics, and there's a new economic theory that is being applied today called modern monetary theory, which basically simplest way to explain it. When we get in trouble, hit, just print money, print money, print right. money. Right. So when you talk about control, I, again, this is, this is not something I want to believe. And I, I this takes me out of my my level of understanding, like this country is the greatest country on earth, the I, land still, of opportunity. And this takes me a bit out of that. Still it is. always will be. Yep. But but here's the thing that's, that we're losing right now. We are losing democracy because they have found a way to buy votes. Like everybody that cheered for this, this paying off of the student loans, the $10,000 paid off, like, hey, look, that helps people. I'm all for that part. But do you know why they did it? It wasn't because it's for your good. It's because they got the ability to print more money, which is 
a, that's a profit center for them, but they also bought your votes mm -hmm. at the expense of your kids, your grandkids and the future family line that you don't and won't ever know it comes on their expense. Yep. So are you really happy that they paid off $10,000? Now your kids are never going to enjoy the life you did. Is that really a good trade-off? No. Are you happy that they hired 87,000 new IRS agents? And, oh, and this is, remember, this is all in the, the Inflation Reduction Act. Please, somebody that's really smarter than me, tell me one thing in the Inflation Reduction Act that actually reduces inflation. Please, just one. And, and then I want you to then go one step further if you're so smart. Tell me one thing that reduces inflation in the next two years. Because that's all we got to worry about. Because after we get done with inflation, I don't think it's going to go two years. We're going to hit stagflation or deflation. Do you know what that means? If you think, well, I hope you do. But the thing I'm trying to explain to you is everything in the Inflation Reduction Act, even if it was to reduce inflation, reduces inflation 10 years from now. And I'm even assuming that like they're going to pull any of it off. 87,000 IRS agents to tax the wealthy and the corporations. Are you kidding me? If you're wealthy, if you're somebody that knows a wealthy individual, you know that wealthy individuals understand trusts and foundations, and they have teams of legal, they have teams of accountants that know the tax code, and they know that the tax code very clearly states that if you just understand the tax code, you're not going to pay much in taxes. Oh, that isn't true, Chris. There's no way that's possible. Really? The Clintons? How about the Gates Foundation? How about Warren Buffett? How about your, your awesome thing? Just re Most of you will remember this. Warren Buffett did such a nice thing. He donated his entire net worth to Bill Gates' foundation. What a freaking nice guy. Was, Doing such super good nice things. Guy, I mean, the man gave yeah. up his entire freaking net worth. And that was a big net worth. And Mr. Gates says, oh, you know, Warren, you're such a good friend. Thank you for doing this. We're going to do such good with this. We're going to buy all the farmland in this country so we can control food. Sorry, I got off track. Bill Gates then says, hey, thank you. I'm going to do good with this. Bill Gates, who runs the Gates Foundation, who also has full control over the investment direction of the Gates Foundation. Bill Gates, and you guys can Google the Gates Foundation portfolio. It's public knowledge. Bill Gates finds this really good investment. This is all of his research, his fact papers, gets his whole team behind this one investment. And they say, yep, that's the one we're going to do. And they put like more than half of the Gates Foundation in this one investment. Anyone want to guess what that Gates Foundation pick was? It's a great company called Berkshire Hathaway. Who owns Berkshire Hathaway? Oh, Warren Buffett. Who controls the money in Berkshire Hathaway? Oh, Warren Buffett. Draw a circle, folks. Warren Buffett, this nice guy, donates his entire net worth to the Gates Foundation, gets a full tax deduction on that. The Gates Foundation takes all the money, puts it right back in an investment controlled and owned wholly, not wholly, but almost wholly by Warren Buffett. Did anything change for Warren? Nope. Not a thing. Did he get a tax deduction? Yep. Did he go public saying, I pay less money than my assistant? Yep. Does every wealthy individual pay less than their assistant? Yep. Did they do anything illegal? Nope. They followed the tax code. Do I do that? Yep. I learned it because I watched what they did. And you're going to tell me that the IRS agents they just hired that are packing heat. Now, I didn't know, Nick. I didn't know they packed heat. But anyway, I just learned that. Now, they're going to go out and they're only going to go out after the big guys that have full legal teams and have full accounting teams that can justify and show everything. 
And the IRS agents are going to spend years, decades, trying to get taxes out of the wealthy who do nothing but follow the tax code. Absolutely not. No, they're coming. You know out. who the IRS agents are coming after, folks? You and I. You. Yeah. They're coming after you and yep. me. Why? Yep. Because we don't have legal teams. We don't have accountants because we are easy targets. And you know who we are? The middle class. Yep. Make no two ways about it, folks. You think they're taxing the wealthy. You are the wealthy. That's so funny that they're you coming brought after this you, up. Not them. Because we were literally on. It's nothing to do with what I do. I'm trying to just be brutally honest here. Yeah, we were we were on the phone with. Uh, we had our our, our biweekly uh, uh, call with our our legal team for all of our companies and everything. And he literally brought this up because we were trying. You know, we're doing some donation stuff, and he wanted to make sure that we were like. Really, he's like, because if you trigger an audit right now, you guys are fucked. He's like, because they're targeting you guys because you don't. Yeah, you have me, but I'm not what they have. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I can't fight the IRS the way that those other teams can. And he was straight up with us. And he said, listen, you guys, we have to make sure that our, you know, our eyes are dotted, our T's crossed in the way that we, you know, donate money and the, and the thing and the up and the and basically what it is. It was a simple product. We want to take Johnny Slick's products and, and donate them to uh, firefighters, law enforcement, and service members over, that are serving overseas uh, and doing it the right way. And uh, anyways, but something little as that, and I have my own nonprofit, so I can't use it because I'm on that board. I'm on the board, but I'm also a managing member of this company to where even if I did that, right, if I use my own nonprofit, that would trigger the IRS. Next thing you know, they're knocking down our door. You know, now I've got some guy, a, a, an armed guy in a wheelchair, you know, auditing, auditing my thing. I don't know if you guys have seen that freaking clown show, but you're hundred percent correct. And it's, it's, it's funny. You brought this up because it's a very real thing. This is the reality that we're living in. This is what they did. And it has nothing to do with the rich. It's, it's, it's to, it's in this whole this whole last two and a half years, man, is to, is to castrate the middle class. It is to, it is to cut the middle class feet out from under them because we are the greatest threat to their control. Yep. And you know where the threat comes first and foremost, where the middle class's wealth resides, the majority of it, real estate. Yeah. So what did they do? Well, they printed 5.1 trillion, but what you don't know is a lot of that money, federally funded money, went to none other than hedge funds. BlackRock, Blackstone, follow the trail of the money and you'll see how it made it there. And then BlackRock and Blackstone, who understand Wall Street are, pulling money out of wall street they're still in it but they pulled a lot out of wall street you don't only find that out if you understood the dark pools where they trade they the trading's way down in dark pools and they took that money from wall street to main street so why is real estate so high is it because your brother and your friends from school are all buying houses no no it's because hedge funds that are using federally funded money are buying the house next to you and your neighbor's house and developments and building massive, massive apartment complexes in Salt Lake City and places where our hot, the hotbeds are. Why? Because if they can control real estate, something we all need, why? Because we need shelter. Mm -hmm. They take back control of the middle class. Don't worry, we'll rent it to you. And we're watching it happen. We'll rent it to yeah, you. Yeah, don't worry, we got you covered. We'll rent it to you. And right. oh, by the way, mandatory five or 10% increase per year. Yeah, dude, it's, uh, it's all happening. It, it's it's really scary from my standpoint of what I know watching this thing happen because it's a lot of this has been done before. Yeah. I mean, it's been done in Germany. It's been 
you know, the Nazis applied a lot of this. There's been a lot of the stuff that we're seeing happening today that's been done. And, and the one thing that has been remaining a truth that I, I try to spread the word on and try to help people do, which is very simple, is take back control of their money. But too many people think they know what they don't know. And it's like what Will Rogers said it best. He said, the biggest problem in America is not what people don't know. He says, the biggest problem in America is what people think they know that just ain't so. And you can't help people that don't want help to think they're smarter than they are or get advice from somebody that has something to gain from them. That's one of the hardest things I've faced in my mission to do it. And I try hard, man. So, okay. So here's the deal. 747 is going to crash. It's coming regardless. All right. Let's just, let's just call it. Let's, let's, let's say that it's going to crash. We're going to be in an, I'll call it. We're good. We're going to be in another, another depression. Right. Um, I love like, like reading about stories of the Great Depression and how many millionaires were created during the Great Depression. So with that said, Chris, 747 is going to crash. I'm a middle-class business owner. What do we do? What do we do to protect our generation, to protect our legacy, to protect our people, to protect our tribe? How do we set ourselves up for success? Explain. Well, I'm just going to give you one. I could... I got a lot of stuff I could say, but let's just let's just do what the wealthy do, right? Let's do what the Rockefellers, the Rothschilds, let's do what J.P. Morgan and the Stanleys did. Let's do what Walt Disney did during the Great Depression and Ray Kroc did, and also all the rest. Let's just let's just look at how did they do what they did? How did they become who they are, including the Kennedys? Mm -hmm. It all starts with what we've been talking about this whole time: control. So every one of the people listening, myself included, we were taught growing up to go out and work for money. And if you're listening to this, I'm holding up just some money. We were taught to go out, trade our hours for these dollars. We all know how that works. And when you get paid your paycheck, you are also taught to do what with your paycheck? Put it in the bank. Mm -hmm. Why? You, you never question it. You never even ask, why is that what we do with our money? Oh, because it's safe. Oh, because it's a financial institution. Oh, because they give me checks. Oh, because they give me dumb, dumb suckers when I go in. Whatever your reason is, that's up to you. You put your money in the bank. It's now, safe, Chris. It's safe there. That's yeah. it's faith. I know what it is. Yeah, it's just like they believe in the FDIC. Don't even get me started on that. <laughs> we give control of our money up to a traditional bank. And does the bank take your money? Once you give it to the, that nice teller that gave you a dumb, dumb sucker, do they take our money, put it in a little box and put it in the safe for safekeeping for us next time when we come in to get it? Nope. You know what the bank does? The same thing you should do. The bank takes your hard-earned dollars and then sends that shit to go to work for them. And how do they do that? Well, look in the glass cubicles. What are they doing? They're doing loans. They're loaning you money for your car. They're loaning you money for your tractor, your boat, your plane, whatever it is you buy. You're, you're borrowing from the bank, but they're just giving you your money back. And they're, they're luring you in. And this is kind of a funny topic, but let's just pretend for a second. You know, they used to lure money people to do deposits because they paid you an interest rate. I mean, most people are getting less than 1%. Even though interest rates are going up, doesn't seem like you're savings rates going up. I can hit that in a second too, okay. why that is. But let's just say they pay you one. How much are they lending money out on cars right now? It's about 6%. So let's just take six for the loan minus the one they paid you. What did the bank just make? They made a spread, a 5% spread. And how many times did they do that with your money? That loan comes back, they loan the money back out. Forget about fractional reserve banking. All they do is move the money you gave up control of. That's all they do. They make that money work for them, which literally is the second law of wealth. If you really want to get down to the laws, 
your money must work for you. So if you wanted to become in incredibly wealthy, if you wanted to be in control of your money and you wanted to make sure that your future generations would succeed far better than you ever could have because of the actions you take today, here's the, here's the best part. All you need to do is change one thing. Instead of taking your hard-earned savings and giving up control to somebody else's bank, take your hard-earned savings and put it into your own bank. Now, I don't mean go out and buy property and put a foundation up and hope people want to do deposits. I mean, mimic what a bank does. But you have to have a place to put that money. And remember, this is where the Rockefellers, the Rothschilds, and all those families put their money. So before I tell you what this thing is, let me just tell you what it does and why the wealthiest families have used this. First off, this place, we're going to call it your bank, pays a guaranteed contractual interest rate. By today, 2022, that interest rate at the lowest two most of them are 3.75%. So 2 to 3.75% is a lot better than what you're getting in somebody else's bank. So already, we've got a guaranteed interest rate that's either two to three times more than what you're making now. But then because it's your bank, every single year, your bank pays you a dividend. Okay, it's just any money that's not used, the bank's going to just put that money back in your account in the form of a dividend. But because it's a return of money not used, that dividend is not taxable, nor is the interest because we're just creating our perfect bank. So your perfect bank pays you a guaranteed interest rate, pays you a dividend, which by today's numbers gets you up as high as 6%, okay? Then it's all tax-free. That's pretty sweet, because why would the wealthy want to pay taxes? Then the coolest part about your bank is if you ever got sued, your bank's money is protected against judgments and liens in most states. But let's even make this funner, because if your bank is so good, your bank has to do what somebody else's bank does, which you have to be able to loan money out and, and make money. So your bank immediately, let's say you put money in your bank immediately in the next 30 days, let's say you want to take, let's just say we put 10 grand in there and we want to take five grand out. And I got five grand here. And I want to lend this five grand to Nick because Nick needs money to, to go buy a piece of real estate or for one of his businesses. Nick's agreed to pay me 10% on this five grand. I started with 10 grand and I just took a loan from my bank for five grand. How much money's left in my bank? Started with 10, took five out. How much money's left? Most people are thinking five grand. They're doing the math. 10 minus five is five. But what if I told you your bank still has 10 grand in it, but Nick has five grand in his hand. So whose money is that? We'll cover that in a second. But your bank allows you to earn interest and dividends uninterrupted, even if you want to take all the money out and give it to Nick. That'd be pretty sweet. But see, if we're going to make this thing such an awesome machine, why don't we make our bank one step better? Let's just say today is the day where we graduate. We go on to a better place. We're all going to die. Okay. And when we die, instead of 10 grand going to our beneficiaries, like a regular bank works, why don't we, why don't we double or triple that? So instead of 10 grand, why don't we make it a hundred grand that goes tax-free to our beneficiary? That'd be pretty sweet, wouldn't it? We got to use all the money during our life. We got paid a much higher interest rate. It was protected and we got to use that money uninterrupted. So our money continued to earn compound interest. Most people, when they hear all that, they're like, that is physically impossible. You are smoking some good stuff and I want some. That place where I just told you to put your savings has been around for hundreds of years. It's been right under your nose. Nobody has told you about it because the way that I just explained it working is against the grain of the way that it's used in the public. What is that machine, that bank that I just told you? It is a specially designed and engineered whole life insurance policy from a mutually owned company that pays dividends. 
Now, the only thing your audience heard in there is whole life insurance. And the reason they only heard that is because they heard Dave Ramsey and Susie Orman and every other guru out there say how bad whole life is. It's an overpriced, expensive piece of crap life insurance policy. And here, now let me drop a bomb. You're right. A regular whole life that your broke ass brother-in-law tried selling you is an overpriced, expensive life insurance policy. But you missed the first words that I said, specially designed and engineered. The whole life that you're going to put your money into to create your own bank is designed and engineered to do exactly that. And how I learned this is by following the wealthy, but also just looking at banks. Traditional banks are the number one purchasers of whole life insurance in the world. Look it up, FDIC.gov. You guys all believe in FDIC. So why don't you just go to their website and type in the little search bar, B-O-L-I, BOLI, stands for Bank Owned Life Insurance. What will come up is pages upon pages of all the banks that own whole life, because that's what that's what BOLI is. It's the only life insurance banks use. And you will find the top five banks as of 2019 had 75 billion. If you look at all the banks in this country, it's over a trillion dollars. So why is it that banks own more whole life than they do all the land and buildings combined on their balance sheet, but yet they're telling you not to buy whole life? It's because in order to do a whole life the way that I'm explaining, where you actually get to use the money immediately in the next 30 days, would require the person that designed that to take a cut in their pay, their commission of between 60 and 90%. That's why you've never heard of this. Mm. When I was an advisor, never once was I shown this. If you go to your financial advisor, you'd have to say, hey, listen, I heard this crazy guy on Nick's show tell me I needed a whole life or something uh, that I can use for banking. Can you create one? Oh, but advisor, he, he did tell me that you have to take a cut in your commission of 60 to 90%. Are you willing to do that for me? Man, we're boys. Can you do that? Oh, I can't do that. I can't cut my commission. That's a lie. They can design the plan to make their commission 90% less than it normally would be. Let me give you the numbers. 10 grand in premium deposits going into this plan that I just said. Okay. If I was to take that 10 grand and give it to my broke ass brother-in-law and put it in a regular whole life or an IUL, the minimum commission my broke ass brother-in-law would make would be 5,500 bucks. That's a good freaking day in the office. Now come back over here. Let's say I design your infinite banking policy for you, your, your, your whole life policy, the way that it should be. That same $10,000 premium deposit pays me roughly $387. So if you're an advisor, do you want to make $5,500 or $387? Dumb question. But where's the difference? Go. $5,500 minus $387. Do the math. Mm -hmm. Okay. Still over five grand. That goes in my client's account. That means my client has that money that I didn't take as a commission to use immediately to go make more money. And then they just take the money out of the account in the form of a loan. Remember I said you could take the money out and you never interrupted the, the flow of interest and dividends. How is that possible? In a whole life contract, they promise two things, the insurance company, they promise a guaranteed interest rate, but they also promise that someday when you die, they'll pay a death benefit. I said that earlier, but you didn't know what the vehicle was. The insurance company never once in that contract says that you can't use the death benefit while you're living. Matter of fact, they will allow you at any time you want to take your death benefit up to the amount of cash value you have in the plan because they want to collateralize that loan. They're smart. Insurance companies are really smart. So if you got 10 grand, essentially they'd let you take nine or 10 grand out of your account. They'd let you take that death benefit now as a loan, but the loan never needs to be paid back because remember, they're just advancing your death benefit. They know for a fact. Their actuaries have told them the day you're going to die, 
So they know the day you die, whatever that loan was, let's call it 10 grand, they're going to subtract 10 grand from the death benefit they promised to pay. All good. But you got to use that 10 grand your whole life. You got to make interest on that 10 grand your whole life. You got to make money twice on the same dollars and you didn't have to work any harder. You didn't have to work any longer and you didn't have to take on any risk to do it. You changed one thing. You put your money in your own bank, like all the wealthiest families. Look it up. Google Biden. Love him or hate him. Doesn't make a difference. How did he fund some of his political campaign? You will find he owns, I think, at least that I know of, seven mass mutual whole life insurance policies. And I guarantee you they're designed exactly the same minor, the exact same way minor. Folks, there's no secret here. This is boring stuff. But if you want to be a bank, mimic the bank. In doing that, when I took the loan for my death benefit, the insurance company does charge me an interest rate. So let's do a math, a math equation. It's simple math. Okay. If the insurance company pays me six with dividend and I take that money out and I give it to Nick, the insurance company charges me 4% to borrow my death benefit. What is six minus four? Two. I made a 2% spread. Okay. Next year, my spread went up. Mm -hmm. The year after, my spread went up. The year after my spread went up and people are like, well, how, how can your spread go up? Because my money never stopped working for me. My money continued to earn uninterrupted compound interest. So the next year I got interest earning interest. Then the year after that, I got more interest earning interest. You have to understand compounding. But see, this is the only place on earth that I know of where you can earn compound interest, but have it be uninterrupted when you access and use that money. Literally folks, like this is like, the wealth hack of the century, but it's not the wealth hack of the century because this has been around for centuries and used for centuries. The only problem is you've never found somebody that knew how to explain it to you, show you how to use it, and who was willing to take a cut in their commission so that you could have more money to use for your family. Folks, the biggest advice I can give everybody in, in, in their life, and it doesn't involve money, it involves giving. If you just change the way you look at everything you do and all you do is focus on giving and solving other people's problems, I'll tell you one thing that will happen. You will never have your own problems. Your problems will always be solved because when you solve other people's problems as your sole purpose, and that takes giving, you get. I might only make $387 per 10,000 that goes in, but you know what? I help, well, right now I think we have 5,600 clients. So just do the math, Yeah. okay? Sure, 5,500 is a nice commission, but you know what? That guy that's doing that commission, your broke-ass brother-in-law, he's probably got 10 clients this year. I got 5,600. It's just giving, folks. That's all it is. Funny you say that, man. I tell us some of the most successful people in the world are three things. They're extremely grateful for what they have and the people they have around them. And they're extremely grateful. They wake up grateful for their friendships, for their family, for the opportunities they have. They are extremely giving, giving their time, their energy, their money, whatever it may be, whatever the commodity they have, they're, they're giving. And they're very vulnerable. They're very vulnerable where they're at. They're very vulnerable in their life. They're very, they're very uh, honest with where they are at in their life and what, and what they have going on. They're very just open and vulnerable. Those three things I've noticed are the people that are the most successful and the most happy and the most, and I say successful as a very well-rounded, right? Not just wealthy, not just fit, not just great relationships, but the, the whole package, what true success is. 
anyways and you remind you remind me a lot of that's that. incredible yeah you remind me a lot of that but but you know what i never used to be like this you know like everything you just said was the exact opposite of what i used to be yeah when i was in wall street i focused on me bigger house bigger faster cars like that's all i ever focused on me 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 and for some reason i never understood why i kept having to give it all back yeah 2008 had to give it all back 2014 had to give it all back lost it all one of the deepest depressions i've ever been in that and and i never understood that the reason that kept happening is because i failed to learn the simple universal law mm. and that is give generously without conditions i just started doing that i learned it from greg reed he said to me at his mastermind when i had no money to be there and i was so out of place i said greg give me the best advice you can he puts his hand on my shoulder leans into me and he says chris i'm going to give you the best advice i can give everyone give your best stuff away for free now maybe i took that way too literal <laughs> because i do i give everything yeah. away i give everything away for free yeah. all my trainings like people are like oh do you have a coaching program nope it's all free go get it and you know what people don't do they don't go get it because it's free but if they paid 30 grand to learn the stuff that I give away for free, they'd be like, oh, this is so good. This is so good. Yeah. But because I give works. it away for yeah. free. But, and I get it and I get it, but I just refuse to go back there because I think people should have the opportunity to learn how to be in control of their money. And you know, here, let me give you one other thing too, folks. This is a really simple exercise. And I've applied this in my life. And my daughter, who's two, is being taught this every single day of her life giving. All of you get something in the mail every single day or in every single week. And I bet you, most of you get one of those envelopes. We get them all. It doesn't matter who it's from asking for a donation. Remember yeah. it comes with a nickel, a pen, a calendar. We all get them. And you know, back in the day, I used to tear those things up as fast as I can. Man, here they are asking. I'd take the nickel, put it in my pocket, tear the letter up, throw it out, take the calendar, be like, oh, I'm just, you know, give it away. Yeah. And I never gave, you know, here's what I do now. I never give any of them away on my desk. I have a stack. It, it's right now it's pretty big because i've been traveling a lot a stack and, and you know what all i do is at a certain point in time usually a saturday morning when i'm in i grab my checkbook and i and, and it's very important that you write a check okay because it's the act and all i do is i go through that pile and you know spca is in there probably six times saint jude's in there probably four times doesn't matter how many there i don't look at who's on it yeah and i just whatever's in my heart I check it off. Usually I set a budget for the day. 600 bucks is my one I got right now. I check a box and I just write whatever is in my heart. And I write the check that check out. I put it in there. I send it off. Go to the next. I write it out. I send it off. And what I started doing is teaching my staff this. And I don't make them use their own money in the beginning. I give them, you know, a small stack of mine. I give them my checkbook. I say, I want you to just feel what this feels like. And I want you to then put yourself in the place of the receiver, not the institution, but the kid that gets a stuffed animal because of the $10 you gave him. The homeless person that shows up to the soup kitchen and actually gets a bowl of soup. Just think about that, that that $10 provided that, the person that didn't have fresh water that now has one glass of water. You don't need to think big. You're not building a, a water treatment plan here. One bottle of water, one cup of soup, one teddy bear yeah. changes those people's lives. To us, it's nothing, but it changes their entire life at that moment. You will never, ever not want to continue doing that the second you start understanding that it's the small actions in life that matter, not the big things. You just got to do more of them. Well, Chris, where can, where can people learn more about this? Where can they find, like, how they get connected with you to where they, like, like if I wanted to dive in and go, okay, 
All right. I'm going to go put my money there. I want to go figure out, you know, where's my, op where do I put my living expenses? How much do I need to live off of? How much do I need to put in this? Where do I borrow money if I want to buy a car? How do I do it if I want to do, you know, maybe apply this to my business yeah. mindset? How do we, how do we make this thing happen? We do all that for you. And oh, I, I said it already, but we don't charge you for it. So you'll never write a check to me or my company for any of this. We get paid that little commission. That's how we survive. So to do this, it's very important that you learn more about this concept. I gave you literally the equivalent yeah. of the pimple on the elephant's ass. So go to chrisnoggle.com. It's N-A-U-G-L-E and watch a 90 minute video will pop up. Watch that video. And when you watch that video, it will give you the opportunity after you're done to schedule a call. Now, I know you're thinking I'm not watching a 90 minute video. You would if you knew that it would change your entire financial future. Yeah, right. And I promise you it will schedule a call. We will get on the call and we'll answer all your questions. We'll explain how it can work for your situation. Not everybody else's your situation. Maybe you just want to get all the money back for every car you buy driving home. We'll model that and build your plan to do that. And then if you want more, we've got hundreds of videos on YouTube. I got thousands on TikTok and Instagram. Guys, if, all I do is if, produce content. If you guys are not following Chris, you're missing out, man. Let me tell you, you are missing out. You do, man. Almost to the point it's uncomfortable. I'm like, why is he giving this away for free? Like, this is some big level coaching stuff here. And you just like <laughs> toss it out like five times a day for free. I'm like, holy shit, man. I do. Um, but like, you really I are. I'd probably make a lot more money if I charged for coaching, but <laughs> yeah. I just, it's just not in my nature at this point to do that. I maybe, just feel like maybe I'm I can talk you into it at some point. Maybe after the 747 crashes <laughs> and we re rebound, we rebuild. What was it? Build back. We build back better. I like it. <laughs> And then we'll then we'll build back better. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> we'll build back better, and then we'll start Chris's <laughs> coaching business. But guys, you really have to do. Oh, follow, I love you it. really do have to follow him, man, because you do some. And it and it and what I love about it is it's so contradicted to what so much other information out there. It's like it, fine. And I just I want I have I have a one on one coaching client. He's who's a who's a, a financial advisor, and he was saying a lot of the same stuff that you're saying. How you're programmed. You are programmed to give the same speech about IRAs and savings and compounding interest until you're 65 and a half or whatever the whatever the new number is. Like he's like, it's a it's a it's a playbook for the last, I don't know, 70 years, 100 years. It's a playbook. And uh, and he said and we're not setting people up for success. We're setting people up to be in the herd. Mm -hmm. We're setting people up to be in the flock because that's what benefits the powers that be for you to be in the flock, for you to be in the herd. So, and, and you, I want to meet that advisor. He's a rarity, man. I spent 16 years in Wall Street. Yeah, he just, and I can tell you right now, he just quit. I ran that playbook. I retired in 18, and it was the greatest day of my life. Two years later, my Series Seven, the stockbroker yeah. exam, expired. I celebrated, folks. Yeah, he he just that. quit his. Uh, he just quit his uh, advisory position and broke out on his own. I like after, this guy. After like, like 18 years, man, he just said, he said, fuck it, I'm out. He said, I'm going to break free and do my own thing. For him. So he gave up a lot, man. Good and you guys him. know how much you, you know how much you make being an advisor, especially at, I don't know how many levels, a lot, a lot. like you, some next level shit. A lot. And uh, he, and you don't have to work very hard because you build the assets that's up. And basically, you just sit back that's basically and what patient. he said. He's like, basically whether your client yeah, makes money or loses money, you're making money. And, and, uh, doesn't work that way and he gave, he gave all that up to do his own thing and to help people and to truly, he said he wants to, to truly help people. And, uh, and you're doing that too, man. And so guys will. go follow, 
go follow Chris. Uh, go check out his, if you don't follow on his, on Instagram, TikTok, or whatever your your social media choice, you're missing out. And then and then go watch the 90-minute video. Go change your life. This is what this is about. Move the fucking needle, man. Always forward. That's what the thing, that's what the sign says. That's the name of the podcast. Um, other than that, you guys. Nick, I got one yeah, more thing. Me. If I could, yeah. just one more thing. I, I'm doing something. It's one of my greatest things I've ever created. And it's launching October 14th. And folks, if you if you could just envision going back in time and watching Steve Jobs launch the Mac and launch the iPhone, things that change the world. Yeah. I literally am doing something that will change the way money works forever. And it might cost me my life what I'm doing, but that's okay. Cause that's, that's the greatest, that's on. the greatest, October. that's the greatest ones right there is when you, you go all in and it might cost you everything. Oh, those, those are the big ones right there. I'm going to disrupt. I'm going to disrupt the big guys and they're not going to like it. So they're, but anyway, if you guys want to witness this, I'm doing the most insane launch October 14th. There's no cost. I just need your eyeballs to witness something that literally you will look back and tell your kids. This is the moment when money changed forever. October 14th, go to private. Well, anytime from now until then, go to privatemoneyclub.com and register to see how we're going to change everything when it comes to the way money works. Excellent. That's in the, the links in the, in the uh, description below guys that was down there. Um, all right, Chris, I appreciate it, man. Thank you so very much guys. Please screenshot this. Go tag Chris. Uh, what's your handle on Instagram? It's just your name, right? Uh, at the, yeah, it's just the Chris Noggle. You got to put it okay. in it. So tag him, tag me, tag always forward. People need to hear this. Let's disrupt. Let's disrupt the system. Let's get you financially free. Let's get you, let's, let's make you uh, resilient in all ways, both physically, mentally, and your freaking pocketbook, man. That's because that's what it's about. So, so tag us. Please share this with a friend, and uh, you guys know the deal. Never quit, never surrender, and always forward. We'll see you in the next episode.